Welcome reptile entrepreneurs. This is your host, Bill Strand. And today we're going to talk about monetizing a content stream. That means you get paid for putting together a blog, website, YouTube video channel, or even a podcast. It isn't necessarily intuitive to be paid for producing a show you offer for free, but there are a number of methods to do this. Joining me today is Dylan Perrin from the Animals at Home Network. Dylan is going to share with us a number of methods that allows him to be financially compensated for the show he produces. So if you have a YouTube show, blog, website, or podcast, this is a good show to listen in on and see if you can turn your show into a revenue stream. Before we dive in, I'd like to address the uneasy feeling many of you may have about receiving money for producing a show. The bottom line is that monetizing your show will allow you to increase the quality with better equipment and more time spent on it. And you will increase the show's longevity. Because sooner or later, you or your partner will ask why you are doing this. Anyone who produces a show knows how much work it is to prepare, create, publish, and do it all over again next week. It is relentless. Yes, we love doing it, but I suggest that implementing some of the strategies Dylan is about to share may dramatically increase your enjoyment and your show's quality. Please join me in welcoming Dylan Perrin to the Reptile Entrepreneur Podcast. Welcome, Reptile Entrepreneurs. Today, we have another podcaster on to talk about this wonderful art of podcasting, but we're going to be expanding it to talk about how to monetize a content stream, whether that be podcasting, YouTube, or blogging. Welcome, Dylan. Thank you very much for having me, Bill. I'm very much looking forward to this. Well, Dylan, let's go ahead and explain what your podcast is. Let's introduce the audience to Animals at Home. Sure. So my podcast is Animals at Home, Animals at Home Podcast, or Animals at Home Network. Some people know it as. And I started it back in 2018, in the fall of 2018. We are just over, I think, over 110 episodes at this point. So it's it's got a decent catalog. And we mainly cover the reptile hobby, her- herpetoculture, how to improve ourselves as keepers. Really, most of the, the content is actually directed towards the keeper rather than specific animals. Of course, the reptiles play a large role in each conversation, but we tend to focus on how we as keepers can do better. Okay. Now you said network. What is a network and how did you become a network? So a network is, I guess, maybe a term that I invented, although I think I, I've stolen it from from other podcasts as well. I I hit a point with my podcast where I realized I was really eating up a lot of time doing a show a week. And actually, at that time, I think I was only doing one one show every two weeks, but I wanted to have more content available and more content pumping out on, on the podcast. But I knew I wasn't able to do it myself. So I thought, I brought somebody else in to produce their own show under the same umbrella. If anyone remembers the Herp Nation podcast, or Herp, Herp, I think it was, yeah, Herp Nation podcast, and they did something similar where it was one podcast in the Apple store or in the Apple app, but underneath that was several different shows and with different hosts. And I actually really liked that model as a listener. This would have been five or six years ago because you could kind of, it was almost like flipping through channels and getting slightly different content under the same umbrella. And I, I wanted to replicate that. So after doing maybe about a year and a half of just recording the show myself, I brought in another host, Bryce Broom. He's a South African 
a reptile keeper, mostly focusing on venomous snakes. So I knew he could attack herpetoculture from a completely different angle than I could. And he does his own episodes. He's, he's had a little bit of a break because he's, you know, South Africa, he's, it's a little bit hard to book interviews and things. So he's had a gap in his shows, but he's planning on getting back into it soon. And it's been awesome because he's, he, he has his own equipment. He records his own show and then he gets to publish his shows underneath the animals at home network, which means my listeners get it downloaded to their phones or their apps or whatever they're using it on. So, so that is sort of the, the reason I started it. I liked that model from Herp Nation and I think it gives the listener, listeners a, a little bit of a dynamic as far as the different types of episodes they can listen to. Okay. Uh, so let's go back to the beginning for the animals at home network. What inspired you to start a podcast? Well, originally I started the YouTube channel. Actually, I should rewind even further. I started as a blog. I was actually looking for a way to make a little bit of extra money online. So it kind of goes well with this podcast. I started writing a blog about something completely different. It was like a health nutrition thing. And I was, you know, playing around with AdSense and learning how to use Google to, to drive traffic. And I quickly realized I had no passion for what I was writing about. And as much as I wanted to make a little bit extra money, I could not drag myself to write these articles about health and nutrition. It just wasn't in me. So I thought, why don't I just take that same concept and focus on something that I'm passionate about? And if it makes money, that's great. And if it doesn't, at least I feel like I'm doing something that I enjoy. So then that's when Animals at Home, the blog started. And I was just sort of writing just different articles about setting up you know, DIY enclosures and quasi care guides and whatnot. And with that, because I was doing some DIY projects, that's where YouTube got folded in. And so I thought, okay, I'll record a few things and, and start doing some tutorials online. And, and I did YouTube for maybe six months where I was just doing a few different random videos here and there. And I hit a point where I realized where I think, you know, the classic pet tuber eventually hits and that's to continue producing content. The easiest way is to just continue to buy new animals. And, you know, you get this sort of fountain of youth of content if you continue purchasing animals. And I did not want to go down that path for many different reasons. I live in a small apartment that would run out of space. Financially, it didn't make sense. So that's when it sort of dawned on me that I think a podcast would be perfect because I could have reoccurring content on a monthly basis or a weekly basis that didn't require me to go out and buy new animals. And even at the time, I still was very green in the hobby and it, I felt very wrong about giving people too much advice you know, about how to care for reptiles when I feel like I didn't have enough under my belt yet. So I thought the podcast would give me an opportunity to learn how to be a, red, a better reptile keeper and bring listeners on along that journey. So that was sort of the genesis of the podcast. That would have been the summer of 2018. And then twenty, the fall of 2018 is when it officially launched. Okay. And you touched on something that I'd like to highlight and explore a little bit. And that is that you didn't feel like you were expert enough to be teaching people. And so how did you come to terms with that and create a very successful show around that. Yeah, it's sort of an interesting concept. It was almost like I realized that I couldn't do the teaching myself, so I needed other people to to teach for me on my platform. And it's funny, I had T.C. Houston from Reptile Mountain had said to me once, like, great job getting other people to talk for you. And that's kind of what the podcast has been. But I think I started realizing that it was it almost felt like I was faking things if I was going to make a video about how to care for a day gecko. Well, I've had one day gecko in my life. I've had her for five, six years, mm-hmm. but that doesn't make me a day gecko expert. And I, I realized it just, 
there was something very unauthentic about trying to pass along information and it just didn't seem right. And I knew that there were some amazing reptile keepers out there with incredible information that they that aren't interested in, in bringing that content online in any way because they're focused on their own things. They're not going to start a YouTube channel. They're not going to go start a podcast. So I thought I can just have them on and, and pull out that information from them and make it available to every the everyday keeper. And, and, and that's really what I ended up doing. There was a very strong sense of that imposter syndrome at the beginning because you do feel, who am I to be giving information to people? And as long as you can find the right people to help you deliver that information the the information the, the imposter syndrome sort of melts away but at the beginning it, it that's very much what it felt like now you release on both uh, the uh, as a podcast and as a youtube video uh, why did you choose that and how is that going it's a good question so the the reason i initially did it is because the i already had the youtube channel set up and i kind of wanted to continue putting content out on YouTube. And and it was already started. This was, you know, three years ago. Now, podcasts were already starting to pop up on YouTube. So I, I kind of felt that it, it could work. There, there are some benefits to YouTube. The biggest one, obviously, is the AdSense revenue that you eventually can work towards. At that time, my channel was not monetized, but I kind of had in the back of my head that I might as well put it on YouTube. And, and then the second thing, especially as a podcast, is it's one of the only places that people can comment on an episode. Because any other podcasting platform like Apple, Spotify, all these different ones, there's so many at this point, there's no real place for the listeners to congregate and discuss the episode very easily unless you had it on Facebook or something. And so those are the two sort of a few big reasons that I wanted it on there. I would say for the first year, I thought it was the biggest mistake ever because as really? you know, as a podcaster, you can imagine how much extra time it takes to, to edit the, the, the podcast because of the video. It just adds so much more time and it wasn't paying off. And I was thinking, why did I do this? It's just, you know, most people were listening to it on audio at that time and it was just eating away at my time. But something changed at the end of 2020 and there was a flip from, it was about 70% listening on audio and about 30% listening on uh, watching on YouTube. And now about 10 months later, that has completely flipped and 70% of the views come on YouTube and 30% come on audio. My numbers have increased over this past year and we could talk about that maybe a little bit later, but okay. people kept, the YouTube side kept growing. It grew faster than the audio side. And so a couple of months ago, I realized I'm going to have to lean into this a little bit and I decided mm. I'm just going to produce the show as best as possible on YouTube without taking away from the audio listener because I'm a, I personally love podcasts. I listen when I drive. I listen when I work out mm -hmm. and I really get frustrated when I listen to a podcast that has a whole bunch of visual elements and as a listener, you yeah. can't interact with yeah. it. You don't know what's going on. So I'm very conscious of that. But I also make the video on YouTube somewhat more entertaining by, you know, overlaying some video clips or pictures. So people that are sitting there on their computer, or on their phone watching are still getting some visual interaction rather than just seeing the, the people talking like myself and my guests talk back and forth. So, yeah, so I, I have slowly made the YouTube maybe a little bit more enjoyable for the watcher with hopefully not taking away at all from the listener on, on the app as well. So at this point, I'm happy that I did it. But I'll say, like I said, for the first few months or the first year or so, I thought it was a big mistake, but I'm happy I didn't give up on it. Well, I've got huge respect for what you've been able to accomplish. Uh, I've tried to do both the podcast and the YouTube, and I know firsthand how much work that is. And uh, so you, you've done a very good job doing that. And um, Thank you. 
Uh, I'm taking notes from watching you. So when you're, uh, you first started off, did you have an idea of who you wanted to reach? Did you have a target audience? I think I did. I think I, I, I was really aiming for the reptile keeper. This might sound weird to say, but I think I was aiming for the reptile keeper who may have felt a little bit of guilt about keeping reptiles in captivity. And mm. these are people who just sort of through their intuition generally strive for improving the care because there's a little bit of an inherent guilt that comes when you see your animal in an enclosure and you think, is this right? And I, I because really a big part of the podcast was exploring the ethical side to the hobby. Should we even be keeping animals in captivity was the question that I was trying to answer. And there are a ton of keepers that think that way. And some of the most common feedback I get from the podcast is people going, I have been thinking the same thing forever and I've never mm -hmm. found anybody talking about it in this way. And so I think it's a lot of people that are already having these sort of conundrums in their own mind and they find the podcast and it's, it's, it's not like they're even really learn. They are learning new information, but the sort of the philosophy side they already have inherently. And it's just finally a, a piece of content that's connecting with them that way. So, so that was my an, initial audience where people that wanted to maybe interact with the hobby on a slightly deeper level. It seems to me that you've maintained that audience and served them well. Would you say that uh, you have? As in, would you say that your audience right now is that target audience that it uh, has maintained? Yeah, I would say that our audience has only grown over time. I think I've done a good job finding those keepers, and I've even found people who weren't we didn't have that mindset about herpetoculture, but listened to the show and now have kind of evolved to think of it that way. So I think my the one way my audience is growing is obviously by finding new people with that mindset, but also doing my best to transition some people away from more simplistically thinking about the hobby to maybe a more complex side and they find it and it, it sort of connects with them as well. And so I would say, yeah, I'm starting to pull people from the other side as well, which I'm, I'm happy about. Well, you've done something very interesting with that being your focus and and that is that you've found a way to have a focus that goes across all reptile and amphibian keepers uh, and that's quite the challenge for people trying to have a reptile podcast it's because ball python people and chameleon people and dart frog people are completely different mm -hmm. communities and so what you've done is you've created a topic that is common to all those communities. Uh, have you found a challenge reaching out to all the different communities? Yes, I, I definitely have. I would say the, the biggest challenge is landing into an echo chamber because it's, it's easy to do that, especially on Facebook. Echo chambers just you know, they erect themselves immediately. And so I, the show can get stuck in those chambers and people real people in that kind of community will love the show. They really enjoy it. But 
you know, a big part of me says, I, I want other people listening to the show as well. I want people that disagree with this episode to listen to it. And it can be a challenge to get that content to those people because of how, how rigid the walls get built up on, online. If, if, like you said, there's so many different segments of the hobby where somebody who's a ball python keeper is probably not going to want to watch a podcast about creating naturalistic enclosures. I shouldn't say that as a hard rule, but if you are somebody who keeps in racks, for example, and, and that's your focus, you're breeding morphs, for example, wanting to listen to a podcast about creating naturalistic enclosures or, or trying to replicate sunlight, for example, may not be right up your alley. Now, I would love for those people to listen to it because they might they might start to think, hmm, maybe this is, they have a point here, but it can be a challenge to break into that mm-hmm. side. What did you want to get out of the podcast from the beginning? Uh, we, we You did talk about monetization and you talked about a personal journey uh, let's let's bring that all together. And what would you say you wanted to get out of the podcast uh, at the start of your podcast? Yeah, of, of course, the monetization was there. The sort of exploring the captive husbandry side, the ethics of it was there. But really, what 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 drove me to start the podcast is I, I w- it was at a weird time in my life where I actually had just finished being a competitive swimmer, I swam for a long time. And that was my only focus for, and I swam at a high level for a long time, like a national level. And I retired in 2016 after Olympic trials. That was my last swim meet. And, and then after that, I was about a year and a half of just kind of like floating through life, not really sure what I w- was going to do. And I, I hit a point where I just realized I need to do something that makes me very afraid. <laughs> I realized that I needed to tackle a project that made me very nervous because it had been a long time since I've challenged myself in something. It had been like a year and a half, two years. And when the thought of the podcast just popped in my head, just as thoughts do, they pop in your head, it, it really terrified me. And I thought, this means I must do it. I, I didn't know. I, I knew that if I left it for too long, I would talk myself out of doing it. Uh-huh. So I basically bought the equipment right away. I set it up. I started emailing people. I'm a very introverted person, and and people may not realize that on 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 the podcast. I'm not necessarily shy, but I'm not someone to be very outgoing. And so this fear of doing it was the one thing that was driving me. I just knew I had to stay in front of it. And something inside me told me that it, it would make me a better person being able to do it, being able to pull it off. And that's sort of a ra- very random answer to that question. It may be some surprising to some people, but it a lot of it was a personal development path for me. And I could see it there, and I just went after it as hard as I could to the point where I'm now comfortable doing it. But it took me mm-hmm. a long time to get comfortable doing the show. Like over a year for sure, I would get very nervous before episodes. It was a whole thing for me. And, and still sometimes I get nervous before episodes. It's getting easier now, but... It very much was, I would say, a personal growth thing for me. Do you think you've achieved your goal? Yes. I, I think I definitely overcame the fear of doing it. I would say I, I've done that. and But I don't think, I think the, the goalposts always need to continue to move. I think I, I've done a lot in the show, but I want to do so much more. And as I become more confident doing it, and as the show takes on sort of a life of its own, I can set further goals and continue pushing it to something bigger and better. But but that initial fear of talking to people and booking interviews and just operating a podcast, I've gotten over that. And, and you know, it, I'm so grateful that I have. Uh, so what are your goals now for the show and yourself? Well, 
I, I want to continue to grow the show. Of course, I would love to get it closer and closer to a, a full-time thing. I do have a regular job as well. I shouldn't say it's a regular job. I coach swimming, so people don't think it's a real job. <laughs> but I coach swimming at the university that I used to sw- uh, swim at. Uh-huh. And and so so th- those two things kind of go well together because I have the middle of the day off quite often and, and I can work on the podcast. But uh, right now my focus is just growing the listenership and, and doing what I can to do that. And And one day I would love to have it as a very well-rounded, polished, impressive show every week. And I would love to have people helping me with that in a way that I could bring an income from more than just myself. Now that is way down the road as far as, you know, bringing on an editor or, or someone to help me do marketing and whatnot. But Mm -hmm. if I can get the show to a point where it brings an income for not only my family, but also another person, that would be amazing. So, so that is off in the distance, but that's where I'm looking right now. Well, that's a good segue into the the core of what we're talking about, and that is monetization of a content stream. And uh, just to set the stage, um, audience members, if you're going to be starting a content stream, there are ways of monetizing that and getting some money to come back to you. And so it's important to know what these techniques are. And Dylan's done a, a very thorough job in touching these bases and has been generous as offered to be generous with his time. And so Dylan, let's go over the different monetization methods available to someone starting a content stream. Sure. Yeah. There are actually more than you might think. Cause sometimes I'll tell people that I do a podcast and they think, how, how could you ever make money off that? What, what, what's the point? And, and it is a sensitive topic because for, for whatever reason, making money on your own, sometimes people think that's a bit, weird like you know sometimes people look down on people who make money on their own it's, you know mm-hmm. you could just put the content out for free and whatnot so I, I know why people do get a little bit uncomfortable with it but as as far as the revenue streams there's for myself anyway of course there's youtube adsense so when uh, a viewer sees an ad or clicks on an ad there's going to be a tiny little bit of money that comes my way i have affiliate relationship which is a sponsorship for the podcast with custom reptile habitats i also have affiliate links for amazon I have some merch, some shirts that people can buy, and Patreon as well. Okay. And so those are the sort of the main ones that that I do bring in money from. Okay. Well, let's unpack each one of those and let's start with uh, the AdSense. Uh, what is that uh, and how much does that bring in? Yeah. So AdSense, so it, if you are a, a YouTube channel, I mean, everybody knows the big YouTube channels out there. If you're someone that's bringing in millions of views a month, you are going to be doing really well. Now, my channel does not bring in that many views a month. I think I maybe bring in twenty-five to 30,000 views a month or something like that. So on average, it's anywhere between $150 and $200 a month American. So for me, it, it gets bumped up a little bit because it gets converted to the Canadian dollar, which is, is decent. Maybe some people think it would be way more. Maybe some people would think it, it is way less, but it's something that has been slowly growing over time. And like I said, that is when the ads pop up. And I, I'm pretty conservative with my ad placement. Typically, I'll post about three or four ads in an hour and a half episode of the podcast. So I probably could ramp it up, but I want the viewers to enjoy the podcast. I don't want them to be constantly interrupted through ads if you're watching it on YouTube. So I, I am pretty sporadic with those, but they do. it does, of course, help bring in some money. So what kind of control do you have over the YouTube ads? You have quite a lot of control. So the, the the simplest control is on off. You can turn the ads right off if you want. And 
sometimes I do that depending on the video. And then the the other control you have is you can place ads where you want it. So you 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 can everybody's seen the YouTube ads. So there's ads that you know play for ten seconds that you can't skip. Those are the non skippable ads. You can tell YouTube you don't want any of those or you only want those. There's of course also the skippable skippable ads, which are the ones that play for five or six seconds and you can hit skip. And depending on the type of ad you've you're it's playing, you'll get a little bit more revenue. I don't even know how much you get paid per per video. I think my I think I on average get paid it's like five or six dollars per thousand views or something like that. That's that's sort of the average that that it works out to. And and then on top of that you can choose where you want ads inside the video. So you can you have full control over that if you want to just slide ads at any point in the video, you can just drop an ad in and then it'll it'll stop the video to play that 5 second skippable ad. And and yeah, so you you can you do have actually a fair amount of control over it, which is sort of nice. Okay. And how consistent is the revenue from AdSense? It is I would say it's quite consistent. I mean, it, it, it constantly grows as the channel grows, which is nice. It, it does wax and wane a little bit. I find when we go into the Christmas season, I typically, my ad revenue bumps up quite a lot. I think the company's corporations start really paying for a lot of ads mm-hmm. and I'll see a nice little bump. And then in January, February, it sort of trickles back down. And then normally I'm caught up to where I was last Christmas sort of by the summertime. So hopefully for another bump into the, into Christmas season. So it is pretty consistent. It, it does wax and wane, but at a slow level, it sort of comes up and down. It's not like one month you'll have no dollars and you go, what the heck? Mm-hmm. It, you can see it kind of dropping a couple dollars a month or rising a couple dollars a month. It's, it's never a dramatic change. Okay. And then we have uh, affiliate links. And these are links that say go to Amazon for equipment uh, or anything on Amazon. Uh, how does that work and uh, how much does that bring in? So anybody can become an Amazon affiliate. You can just Google how to do that. There's tons of YouTube tutorials out there, how to become an Amazon affiliate. And basically what that is, is, is just as Bill's saying, if, if I use a product, or especially if I'm doing like a DIY project, for example, and I use several different products to do that, people are always wanting to know what products you use. So if you, you put it into the description with a link to Amazon and what the link does, it's, it's a link that is specific to me. And when someone clicks on that link, if everybody's heard mm-hmm. of cookies, which is an, sort of the, the, a browser's way of tracking an individual. So when someone clicks on that link, there's like a 24-hour cookie. So if they buy anything on Amazon in the next 24 hours, I will get a small commission. It can be anywhere from 1% to 3 or 4%. It's pretty tiny when it comes to Amazon. They're, they're pretty cheap when it comes to paying off their affiliates. It used to be more. It's, it's getting smaller and smaller. But it, it doesn't have to be the product. So if I'm saying I use this tube of silicone to do this project, if someone clicks on that and goes, oh, I need to go buy a toaster, then and they buy a toaster, I'll get commission on that toaster. Now, that one is more sporadic. Some months I'll make $200 a month. Sometimes I won't get anything for a month. It'll be zero. It, it, it's very erratic. It, so it really depends on what the, the people are buying. But so it's not necessarily something I count on. It sort of averages out between seventy-five and a hundred a month. It, it does add up, you know, which which is nice. But yeah, so that, that that's basically the premise of it. You can click on the products that I've used, and whether or not you buy that product or any other product in the next twenty-four hours, I'll get a small okay. commission. And that, uh, and by the way, uh, just a note for listeners: you don't pay anything extra. So if you want to support someone giving you good content. Use some of those affiliate links. It, it It's like Amazon is paying Dylan to give you good information. 
So it's a pretty good deal. Okay, and then you have a relationship with custom reptile habitats. Uh, and how does that work? So that, and that's actually a great point to make too. I, know, I normally say that, yeah, it's at no extra cost to you when you click on these links. And some people think like, oh, I'm going to have to spend more, but that's true. Uh, and and my, my relationship with custom reptile habitats is also an affiliate relationship. So it's the same premise. If someone clicks on the link that I have, it's set up, yeah, it's set up to be a cookie relationship as well. So if they buy a an enclosure, I have a, a certain percentage <clears throat> of commission that I get. And it's another great relationship as well because me, myself and Paul, the owner of Custom Reptile Habitats, really connect on the philosophy of reptile keeping. And, and we've, I, I was, we were in talks before that company even existed as he was building it up. So I've been kind of part of that process as well. So it's been really neat. But yeah, that, that is how that relationship works. It's just purely an affiliate link. So when you guys, when anybody okay. hears me say it, on in the intro, I'm not getting paid to say that, but I will get paid if you do end up buying something. And that affiliate relationship will bring anywhere from zero dollars a month all the way up to a couple hundred dollars a month if somebody's okay. buying a couple of enclosures. And my favorite part about that relationship is it's going to continue to grow as as his business grows, as the podcast grows. People are going to start buying those products, and and I'm yeah. happy to recommend them because they're amazing products, and and it will it will pay off in the long run. Yeah, he's got a very interesting chameleon cage design that uh, I, I'm uh, watching to see how that works because it looks very interesting, and uh, I'd like to see how that works out. How it plays out. Yeah, yeah. it's the, the idea that uh, you don't have, as far as I can tell, is you don't have the wall, and uh, chameleons are very good at finding ways out, and, and they yes, spend all yeah. day trying to figure out how to get out. So uh, I'd, I'd love to <laughs> yeah. see somebody make that work. So we'll see. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. All right. And then our uh, fourth method is merchandise. Uh, how do you set that up and how is that working for you? So the merch is interesting. So there are several, if, if anyone wants to set up merch, it's pretty easy at this point. There's there's companies which are called drop shippers. So I don't have any of the merch besides the shirts that I own. I don't have a box of merch sitting here and I have to ship them out when somebody buys one. I use a company called Printful, and there's also Teespring as well, which people will probably see on YouTube. Printful has just always worked for me. Sometimes I wonder if I should go to Teespring because once you hit 10,000 subscribers on YouTube, which is pretty close for me, you can have the Teespring shirt links in underneath the YouTube description. So that may be something that I play with in the future. But I use Printful right now, so I, I, it, it's connected to my blog or to my online store. And somebody will go there, they'll pick, a, they'll buy a T-shirt, and when they buy it, it automatically goes to Printful. Printful processes the order. They print the shirt on demand. It's not like there's a bunch of animals at home shirts sitting somewhere. It just gets printed <laughs> on demand. And then Printful sends it to the customer. So I don't have to touch the shirt at all. It just goes from the printer right to the customer. And as soon as the customer buys the shirt, I get charged the wholesale amount for the shirt. And then I'll, and then the customer will get charged the amount that I have on the website. I think the shirts are. $30 or something like that. So there's a bit of a balance for profit there. And the shirt, I don't make a lot of money off shirts. Sometimes it'll be $5 a month, sometimes 40 mm -hmm. or $50 a month on a good month. And it, because I also use it as a avenue to raise money for conservation. And that's the main okay. thing with my t-shirts is every t-shirt and sweater, $5 automatically gets donated to the Amazon Rainforest Conservancy. And that's a, a, a nonprofit in Toronto, Canada that has a, a giant chunk of land in the Amazon Rainforest in Peru. And, and 
so a big part of me with herpetoculture is making sure that we're giving back in a way that we can make sure that the native habitats are being protected as well. So that's really what the shirts do. I make a couple of dollars off t-shirts. I've even lost money on t-shirts because in the last couple of months, all of a sudden governments want more tax on t-shirts. People have, I'm sure, seen taxes go up and whatnot. So sometimes I'll look at my balance sheet and go, I, I paid more. Somebody didn't pay enough for the shirt. It's because they didn't pay the tax, but I had to pay the tax. But for me, the $5 donation is a non-negotiable. So I still donate the $5 and okay. it's my mistake. So I'll eat the you know 75 cents that I lose on the shirt and then just correct the you know, add to the the top line when I have to, you know, change the price of the t-shirt and whatnot. But that's sort of the premise of that. Again, it, it, for me, when you're setting up a store like that, you're tempted to go, oh, I'm going to sell $50 t-shirts so I can make $25 off each shirt. But what I realized is people are not going to, I would rather people buy an affordable shirt and wear the shirt around and people ask mm-hmm. them, hey, what what is that? And it'd be more right. of a marketing piece. And maybe I make a couple dollars and but again, like the main thing for me was having an avenue to raise money, and I think I've almost raised a thousand dollars so far. With I, I donate from from other avenues as well, but the shirts are a big portion of that. So I, I've been happy with the way the merch has played out in, in that way. Okay, and what was the total amount of all these uh, revenue streams together? Well, we didn't cover Patreon yet. Oh, I'm sorry. That, that's, that's right. We got to talk about Patreon. Uh, yeah. All right. Yes. Please tell us about how Patreon works. So Patreon is an interesting one. And I was very resistant to this. I, I had people kind of talk about it uh, maybe about a year ago, asking if I had one. And I was very resistant to do it because anybody who's a content creator, you could probably relate to this. You think there's a couple things that come through your mind. A, you think it feels weird having people pay a subscription for something for you. Like it, it can fe- it can be uncomfortable getting people to pay you for things, yeah. and and that's actually something that you have to get over as well. And I'll explain kind of how to do that. And, and the second thing is is if you're already kind of at full tilt producing what you're producing, you think how can I have people paying me a monthly fee? I'm obligated to provide something for them, but I don't have any more time to give them extra things. So it doesn't make sense. And I've always talked myself out of doing a Patreon. And then in, I think it was around the spring of this year, I had several people kind of in a row ask me if I had a Patreon. And I said, no. And they said, well, we'd really like to support you. And then that's when it clicked to me. It, It made me realize that they don't want anything extra. The listeners don't actually want me to do more for them. What they want is they are huge fans of the show and they want to throw a couple of dollars a month my way to help support it. And that was the sort of the reason I say, okay, I'm just going to do it. So I set it up and really the middle tier, it's $5 a month. The only thing that the patrons get is they'll have an early access to the episode. So they have access a couple of days before it gets posted. And I also let them know what guests are coming up. So if they want to ask questions to specific guests, they kind of have access to that as well. And the only other thing is I also share all the analytics with them sort of behind the scenes, sort of inside baseball of the podcast. But to be honest, I have, I think, about 50 patrons at this point. There's probably about six of them who interact with the Patreon page. Most of them set it and forget it. They're happy to pay the subscription. They don't go on the thing at all because they're not interested in that. They're actually just interested in supporting the show financially. And I, I produce four shows a month on a normal month. So it works out to $1.25 each episode. And so many people are just happy to do that because they find there's value there. And uh, that's what I would encourage anybody, anybody who's on the fence about Patreon 
don't feel like you have to go above and beyond and, and make all these promises for things that you just aren't going to be able to fulfill because you'll be very stressed and you will find that the your audience isn't even interested in having those extra perks as well. The, the nice thing about Patreon is your listeners can have a more intimate relationship with you. So I do have people that message me on Patreon quite often. So that's a perk right away. So some listeners will really appreciate that or some of your audience members will appreciate it. But like I said, a huge majority of them are just interested in supporting and and that's where the Patreon model is great. So right now I think it's around $250 a month that I get through Patreon, which is just over 300 Canadian. And and I, I'm really pleased that I went and did it. And I, I'm just, you're so humbled by the support that people show. And, and it's a great community. We have a lot of fun there, just even in the comment section and going back and forth. And hmm. it's, okay. it, it's, it's a really unique platform for helping you interact with your fans a little bit better. Okay. Well, y- you are talking to me. Uh, I have been on the f- uh, fence with Patreon. Uh, I've had many people request it and I've been humbled by the fact that they've just requested it. Uh, so I, I'm getting to the point where I'm going to set one up. And so I appreciate that insight and yeah, it is, it's hard, uh, to, for some reason it's hard to say, okay, I'm going to have you pay for this thing that I am giving for free mm-hmm. and you don't have to pay. You can just get it and people yeah. are getting it for free, but uh, for people who truly enjoy it and say, I want to invest and make sure that this continues, it has been humbling to have people proactively come out and say, hey, I'd like to support what you do, I like what mm-hmm. you do for the community. So uh, thank you for that insight. Uh, I'll be working on uh, setting one up for this podcast. And so uh, I'll Excellent. I'll dive into that uh, those waters soon. Very good. Uh, so now we've gone over all the uh, the streams, correct? Mm, that's right. Yes, we have. What is it all together when everything uh, adds up in a month? So it's about probably between five hundred and six hundred dollars a month right now. And I'll say that's okay. where it is right now. If you were to ask me two months ago, it would probably have been around four hundred. And okay. you know, if you go back a year, it would only been like twenty or thirty dollars a month at the most. So there's a nice trajectory on it. But yeah, right now it's about that sort of six hundred dollars a month, depending on the affiliate links. So uh, let's let's step back and talk about to the people who are considering doing a podcast. Uh, what do you see as the future for podcasts in, within herpeticulture? Well, it seems like, and you probably have a better handle this than I do, because, but it seems like in the last 18 months, there's been an explosion of new shows. And there's been a, a, shows that just started popping up everywhere. When I started my podcast, I felt like there wasn't very many out there. I think I was also not really looking, <laughs> which will make it easy to not think there were any because I just wanted to focus on my own thing. I didn't want to have the influence of other shows, so I just wanted to create my own thing. And even now, I'm actually not great at listening to other reptile podcasts. You end up talking about reptiles all day. Sometimes you just get burnt out on mm-hmm. them. But there's been an amazing amount of shows pop up, which I think is amazing. I think the more shows that there are, the better the shows will be. And I think what will happen is people who are serious are going to have success and people who you know had the idea and and don't want to 
sit down and really make sure that this is something that they want to do, those ones will probably eventually disappear because as you know, it is an incredible amount of yeah. work yeah. And, and a lot of it is a lot of volunteer time. Like, oh, yeah. You know, we're talking about making some money this month, but it, it, it was almost two years or three years of no money, right. just, just working and working and working. And so it is a lot of consistent grinding, but I think those who are willing to do it, there's going to be some amazing shows available for people and everybody has their own twist on things and every show is just a little bit different. And I think it's amazing for herpetoculture and I think it, it shows how, how responsible we are as a community that we're willing to create these shows that are designed to help people care for their animals better and focus on conservation and, and focus on ethical keeping. And I, I think it's fantastic. What do you see in the future of your particular podcast? Well, it's interesting because if you had asked me before COVID, I probably, my answer is I, I would love to get to a point where I can go and travel and, and meet people in person. Most, I would say 99% of my episodes have been recorded through Zoom or through a virtual computer experience. And I think there's something about being able to record in person that's just different. And there, there's just a connection that you can get that you cannot get through a computer. Not that the computer doesn't work. If we're doing it right now, it works fine, but there's another element there of being in person. So, I would love to get the show to a place where I can go to a place and sit down with reptile keepers and and record conversations in person. Whether that's going to happen in the near future, probably not because things are just too crazy right now. But as I alluded to earlier, it uh, I do want to continue growing the show. I want to make it so it can be a more of a substantial income for me, especially with the pandemic. My actual job comes in and out mm. uh, on, a, on a monthly basis. It seems like we constantly are getting shut down and for me, it becomes more of a, this will be a more stable income for me if I can get that, if I can build that raft and make it float better. You know, if I can continue to build on this, it can be something that is, is lucrative for me and, and for my family, but also I'm doing something that I'm incredibly passionate about. And yeah, it is a tremendous amount of work, but I do love getting to meet new people and talk and, and produce the show. It's, it's just, it's a lot of fun. So I am working as far as the future goes, I'm working towards making it a full-time thing and, and just making it a more well-rounded show. Like I said earlier, if I can bring in another person that can also be making money off it, that would be amazing. And and it's hard to say what in the next two years of podcasting is going to look like, but I think it's just going to keep getting better and better. Okay. Well, for the person who is uh, thinking about starting out, let's talk about what do they need to know about starting a podcast? And not necessarily the equipment, but uh, what should they be ready for? Well, I would say the first thing I would do is is really come up with a mission. What are you trying to accomplish with the show? Just to give you give yourself some more direction. It can be very scattershot at first. If you just say, I'm going to make a reptile podcast, there's just too much there. And it, it can be so hard to make the next step. There's just too many options, too many people to interview. Like what? So narrow the focus a little bit so you can have something to stand on and, and at least produce some content towards that and feel free to branch out when when the time is right but narrow focus is i think better be prepared for a, like i said a crazy amount of work the the amount of work mm -hmm. that it especially when you're trying to learn how to edit audio if you come from me what i had no audio editing background at all so it was a lot of a big learning curve so so that's uh, that is a really big one and the other thing I would say is you will never feel 100% ready to do it. 
So don't wait for the feeling where you're like, I feel prepared, I feel polished, I feel all this. You have to just come up with your mission, come up with what you want to do, and just start doing it. Because your early content is just going to suck. <laughs> There's just no way around yep. it. It's yep. just th those first few things that you go and create, it's just going to be bad. And you, you have to go through, you have to cut your teeth on something. It's just the way it is. And, and don't don't let perfection stop you from lo those learning moments. And those are the times where you just, you just learn so much. And... I would also say if you're starting a podcast or any content, really, a consistent schedule, I think, is very effective. At least it's worked for me. If Whether that's once a month or once every two weeks or whatever it is, come up with something that's somewhat consistent just for yourself, but also the listeners get used to. For me, it's every Sunday morning. My podcast comes out at 9 a.m. Central Sunday morning, and, and people begin to alter their day expecting the show. Like I have so many people that go every Sunday morning, I go to my reptile room to do my weekly cleaning and I throw the episode on. And so your listeners will start to kind of morph around that. So consistent schedule is really good. And, and I would say the, the learning curve is extreme, but it gets easier. So if you start producing content and you feel like you got hit by a truck, don't be afraid. It will slowly get better and it gets easier. And as you become more competent, you can start pushing the envelope more and start doing more challenging things. But at the beginning, it can be very stressful and, and also very vulnerable as well because you're putting content out for the internet and anybody can say anything they want, but you just have to take the plunge. And if you think about it too long, you won't do it. And that kind of goes back to what I was saying about even getting over the fear of doing the podcast. I knew if I thought about it too long, I would have pulled the plug. So I just mm -hmm. ran with it and, and got it done. If you're sitting there and you're, or you're listening to this and you, you feel like you want to try creating content, do it. The, that's the amazing thing about the internet is anybody can do it. Just give it a try. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But if, if, if you don't try, you'll never know if it's going to be successful. And it, that is the weird experience with me with my show is it's almost its own entity at this point. Like I'm just kind of the manager of it, but it, it does feel like it's a separate thing. And, but that's taken three years to get to that point. And you just, you, you have, you'll never get there if you, if you don't, you know, take the plunge and do it. So try it. If anyone has any questions or like, I'm happy to help people because as I said, I think the competition is great. I come from an athletic background. I love the competition of having other shows pop up and we will all make our, our, the shows will grow together and become better if we do have competition. So if you're thinking about doing it, go for it. Okay. And if they want to learn more about you and animals at home, where can they go find it? If you just Google Animals at Home, you'll probably find it. If you go to animalsathomenetwork.com, that's the main website with all the shows, all the show notes and everything there. If you go to YouTube and search Animals at Home, you'll find it as well. And on Instagram, animalsathomeca, that is my Instagram handle, and you can find it there. I'm not, I don't post a ton on Instagram, but I always post when the new episode goes up. So, And, that, and that's a good way to reach out to me as well, just through DMs. I, I'm pretty much very consistent at checking those. So if you do want to reach out, that's the best way to do it. And all of those links will be in the show notes if you uh, if you want to go check there. Dylan, thank you very much, especially for being so open uh, with what's going on behind the scenes. And uh, listening audience, I did check with him to make sure he was comfortable answering those questions before I asked them. Uh, monetization is a, a sensitive subject for most people, but it, it, it's critical for the longevity of our products. Uh, and the projects that we do to keep them going. And so we need to talk about it more if we're going to all have success in this industry. 
Uh, so Dylan, I want to say thank you very much for sharing that. And uh, I look forward to seeing, uh, continuing to listen to the episodes you produce. Well, thank you very much for having me. It was a blast chatting about this. And I think this concept for the show is amazing and it's going to help so many people. So I'm happy to be a guest on it. It's, uh, it's fantastic. Thank you. So where does this leave us? Well, it leaves us with some homework as to how to apply these strategies to our own show. I will be adding these methods to this show and I will report back as to how well it works. More importantly, I will share how I grow each one of these strategies. For example, I have just started a Patreon and will be slowly working on building that up. Stay tuned for how it goes. I personally appreciated how generous Dylan was to share so openly. He gives you a good idea of what you can expect after a few years. If you want to learn more about Dylan and the Animals at Home Network, then you can find the podcast on any podcast app and the video show on YouTube. Of course, you'll be able to find it all on the show notes for episode 12 at reptileentrepreneur.com. I highly recommend the Animals at Home podcast and video for two reasons. The first is the quality of the production. Dylan will be the first to say that he's continuing to make it better, but go and see what a quality production looks like and how he juggles both a video and a podcast. He has recognized the need for a podcast to be on YouTube. It's a strange thing, but the dynamic is real. I have recognized it as well. But video skills are a little bit different than podcasting skills, so I fear it is going slowly for me. That said, I have started the YouTube channel for this podcast, and you can go over right now and see this interview there. The second reason why I recommend you listen to Dylan's show is that he deals with important issues for us in the reptile community. These are deep topics that many of us wrestle with. It is well worth joining the conversation by listening to what other people have to say on the Animals at Home Network. So I encourage you to go check it out. And I want to adjust one more thing that may run across your mind. You may look at all the video channels and podcasts and wonder if there's a place for a new show. And the answer is yes. The thing with shows is that there really isn't competition in the sense that if I watch show A, I can't watch show B. I mean, I can be a follower of both of their channels and five more podcasts to boot. If I love dart frogs, then I will listen to all the podcasts and watch all the YouTube video channels on dart frogs. So don't let the fact that there may be others in the space already slow you down. Now, the space being populated does establish a baseline for what kind of quality is expected, so you can all compete on that. But that is the healthiest form of competition and can be friendly. In this manner, the community actually grows with competition. So if you have a story inside of you, then there is a YouTube channel or podcast waiting for you. Just stick around this podcast. I consider our content streams a valuable part of our community's foundation, so I will be diving deeply into how to create and maintain video, podcast, and website outreach. And if you have questions about creating any type of content stream, you are welcome to reach out to me via email and we can discuss your situation. But for now, it is time for me to sign off. This is Bill Strand saying take care of yourself, Take care of our reptile community, and let's see what we can build.